I know we just prayed, but let's pray again because I feel terribly insufficient and inadequate to co cover this topic. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us and that you are with us. And God, as, as I seek to bring some form of clarity to a very difficult and very personal subject, again, as Ernie said, may these be your words. Would you block me from speaking anything that is, is my own thoughts? Would we rely on the sufficiency of Scripture, knowing that you have given us what we need? Be with us now. Amen. Yeah, uh, how many of you know what we're talking about? Maybe that's why there's more people here than usual. We should, Shayla, we should put that on Facebook more often, I guess, hey? I, I always like to have a little bit of mystery, right? Like, you don't know what we're going to talk about in the summer until you get here. But, uh, but frankly, as the week went on and as we had board meeting and as I was sharing with other pastors and spent some time in prayer and stuff, I was just like, you know what? The more people that know, the more people that can pray. And, and like I said, I, I'm terribly insufficient at this. I'm not qualified to deal uh, with some of the intricacies of this. And I don't, know that, I don't know that anybody is and that it's a simple black and white issue. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and, and deal with this uh, as biblically as we can. And we're going to avoid getting into too specific of situations because that just, it's like a house of cards that just kind of comes down. And so rather I want to step up, take a step back from this and view the two main things that lead up to this. So the, the issue this morning is, uh, is called MAID. It stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. Now, I had a conversation with the individual who asked this, man, it must have been either last summer or the summer before, just briefly. Um, and, and either... Either I was too chicken to deal with it, uh, or, and this seems more likely, right, obviously, uh, that we ran out of time in the summer. I'm going to go with that option. But even as we had, it was two years ago, that's right, even as we discussed this recently again over email, so much has changed in this field in such a short period of time. And as I was researching and trying to get a good grasp of, of what it is and what it, the intricacies of it all are, I was shocked by some some bills and some laws that have been passed that I, had, I knew nothing about, uh, or, or at least very, very little about. Uh, and I guess that's probably in the sense that, and i got to clarify, I'm not speaking to you out of any kind of experience here this morning, because relatively speaking, I've been very healthy my whole life, mentally and physically, and so I haven't had to delve into this like many others have. And so some of you, this is a very, very personal thing. Some of you, you may have had to go through this very unexpectedly where a loved one was in an accident or, or a, a debilitating disease and three months to live is given or something like that. And I don't, I don't know how to process those things. I don't have wisdom for that, at least not personal wisdom. And so I'm going to do my best to try and not speak to it from that sense and be as compassionate as I can to, to say it this way, is many of you are going through situations that I will never be able to understand. Some of you are going through pain and hurt and agony that I have no idea about. And so I want to be as compassionate and as gentle as I can, but also be as biblical as I can as we look at this. So let me give us a little definition here uh, of what this is. If I can find it in my notes, you'd think I would have it in my notes.
I know I had it somewhere. Ah, here we go. Here's the definition that came out. So this came out in 2015 into Canada when it was originally uh, proposed into law. Uh, made is a medical procedure that involves the administration of medications to intentionally and safely end the life of an adult patient who meets strict legal criteria at the request of that patient. Now, the question in that definition becomes what? What are the criteria? How do we kind of define that? And so as I started to look into this, this is where it, it got a little bit muddy for me, is in, in 2016, uh, an amendment came out, and then in 2020, another amendment came out, and then just recently, and I don't want to do a show of hands, because I, I don't want to know if I'm the only one that was this ignorant of this, but in March 17th of this year, another amendment happened, where the criteria gets less and less and less and a little bit more uh, vague in its description. And so as I was kind of reading and, and going through this, I came across an, interview, or a, sorry, an article from a doctor who was working with the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. So the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is a group of uh, evangelical Christians um, that gather together and that they lobby on behalf of evangelicals across Canada in, in government issues uh, freedom of religion, those kinds of things. So this is not coming from one specific kind of denomination or one specific um, thought process because evangelicalism is a very, very large uh, group of people. So, But he, he wrote this. He says, The law is now presenting death as a medical response to suffering in a wide range of cases, not just when someone is already dying, but at potentially any stage of their adult life. Instead of prioritizing supports to help people to live meaningful lives, we've prioritized ways to make death more accessible. This is a heartbreaking message. And as I continued to read through what this man was saying, is his whole argument was like he became a doctor to save people and to help people. And he was really wrestling with, as a Christian, when I see that there's hope, and yet my only option, or my, my Number one option that's given to me is to tell them, you don't have to worry. You don't have to live through this. Rather than going, there is hope. Can I help you? It, man, it was heartbreaking to read what he wrote. The article goes on, and it talks about the dangers uh, that exist for those now battling mental illness or disabilities and some of the potential consequences that can come for those in, in that sphere. And so as I was trying to figure out, man, how am I going to tackle this? How am I going to deal with this? I came across these words from another doctor on that same article, and he says this, even if we achieve theological clarity on this issue, the pressing problem for Christians is having to deal with our emotions in the face of suffering. And I think that's exactly the problem. It's sometimes it's very easy to be, I think, right? I've studied scripture. This is where I've ended up. This is the answer. And then life gets very messy and very uncomfortable. And then we start to go through suffering and pain and hurt. And all of a sudden we go, do I actually believe that which, that which I intellectually have come to conclusion on now that the practicality of it is so overwhelming? So that's the goal for this morning. And I don't pretend that I'm going to have any kind of final answer here. Or that you're going to walk away here going, man, I'm set. I've got it figured out. As I acknowledge, I'm probably going to fumble my way through this and not provide enough clarity for you. But what I want to do is I want to step back and look at the two things leading up to this. Is One is what does the Bible teach about the sanctity of life? And then two, what is a biblical perspective of suffering? Someone I was talking with this week said, said this. I, I shared with them that I was 
preaching on this topic, and they said, now, they said, Greg, now is the time that you need to come to conclusion on this when you're healthy. Because if you don't come to conclusion before some kind of tragedy happens, you're going to think with your emotions. You're going to think not clearly. And I think, right, that's, you ever, you ever been in an argument with your wife and you got real, real heated and then in a moment of clarity it all just went away? Anybody? Right, is when we get fired up or when we get very emotional, right, and maybe this is me more than you, this is bearing my soul a little bit to you, is every next problem is like the worst problem I've ever faced. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, God. How am I going to get through this? What are you going to do? And then, right, two, three, five months, whatever it is, later, you look back and you go, man, Greg, I believe it's written in the New Testament over and over, you of little faith. Man, every time Jesus says that to the disciples, I'm like, pretty sure he's talking to me. So, let's, let's open to Psalm 139. And this might seem like a peculiar place to start, but what I want to deal with at the beginning here is you as a, as a human that has been created. What is unique about us as a human species? What does the Bible teach that should give us some clarity in our value and in our meaning? And you heard me talk about this the last number of weeks, far beyond what you do for a living far beyond what your hobbies are, far beyond what your skill sets are, but your value and your worth is, is found in so much more than that. So let's read this together. I'm going to read uh, the first 16 verses of Psalm 139. So it says this. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is, a, is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unforced substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And that verse 16 hits like a ton of bricks there, doesn't it? David, as he's writing this, is acknowledging in this moment that God has so intimately created you and loves you that he knows everything about you. In, in fact, teaches us he designed you the way that you are, with purpose, with meaning. And he cares desperately for you. And, and as you read through those first few verses, which maybe at first kind of seem like, what does this have to do with, with this very challenging question on medical assistance and dying? Well, 
First, it's dealing with the God is intimately involved in the everyday moments of your life. He's there at work. He knows what your thoughts are. Before, before you even say it, he knows what's coming out. And so I think that gives us a place where we can stand on and we can go, God loves me desperately and wants to be in a relationship with me. That should give me a little bit of a place of where I should stand. If we go back into Genesis, and we won't because we've looked at this lots lately, but if we go back in there, God starts to create, right? And he creates the earth and he creates land and water and, and plants and fish and animals and all these things. And then he creates man. And what's unique about mankind? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created us, mankind, uniquely from every other thing in all of creation. We say it this way here in our church. You are God's image bearer. His image is imprinted in you so that as you go out and that you live, you can experience him in a unique and intimate way that nothing else in the world can. So that's the beginning place that we start from. And then as the Bible kind of moves on, we get to Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. And of course, there's this one command. You shall not murder. You shall not take the life of somebody. God says life is intrinsically and inherently valuable because I have created it and I have authority and you cannot take the life of another person. They belong to me. In Exodus 23, verse 7, a couple of chapters later, God clarifies and says this, have nothing to do with the false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Leviticus 24, 17 says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So you see, right from the beginning of Scripture, as you work your way through, God has placed a premium on human life. It is inherently valuable. But that's Old Covenant stuff. Okay, so what, is, what does the New Testament teach? Well, we get to Matthew 5, 21 and 22, and Jesus says this. You've heard it said to the people long ago, or sorry, yes, I said that right. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is simply saying this. How you treat your fellow mankind matters. Because God's image is in them. And so the way in which we talk about people is vitally important. And and especially as Christians. We as Christians should never ever be condescending towards another group of people who think differently than we do because they have been created in the image of God the same as I have. And we can create this kind of us versus them mentality. Those who do or believe they're over here and we're, and man, all that does is puff ourselves up with arrogance thinking, man, I'm worth it. What scripture teaches is that Jesus died on the cross for every single one of us so that we could find him. Not because of me, not because of you, but because of his love for us. And his desire is that he would take us broken as we are, and if we think we're not broken, I think that's the first indication. 
broken as we are, he'll take us. And he'll put us back together in his beauty, in his image, the way that he intended so that we find meaning and purpose and hope and all the things that we long for. So this is where we start. God is intimately aware of every bit of us because he loves us, because he's created us in his image, and it's his desire that we would not take another's life. In fact, Jesus is not even would you talk poorly or insult or be rude or mean because they are loved. They're, someone said it to me this way once. Next time you insult a human being is remember that's a child of the king. According to what the Old Testament says, he's not going to hold you guiltless if you do that. Right? Not in the sense of, of this fear, but in the sense of, look, that life has value. Every life has value. So that's where we start. Now we get to this place of suffering. How do we biblically define suffering? And I guess the real question, and I don't have an answer for this one, how much suffering is too much suffering? I don't know how to answer that. And so I'm, that's not the goal. That's not my hope this morning. Again, what we're going to do is we're going to read from some of the authors of Scripture who we believe are inspired by the Holy Spirit, shared his words to us on suffering. We're going to read from some people who suffered immensely. Their words are going to be way more powerful than any one man's opinion, than any one man's experience. And so I hope we can read this together, recognizing that these, uh, these are God's words for us. Now, I don't even know how to determine the intensity of pain or suffering, right? Because I only know how I feel. I don't know how somebody else feels. I don't know the depth to which the hurt and, and the difficulty that they're going through is. And so I think when we try and answer the question of how much suffering is too much suffering is we end up with this very subjective place of, of reasoning where who gets to determine that? What authority is there? So I don't want to do that. Rather, I want to talk about what does the Bible teach us about suffering and how specifically to endure suffering. So, um, you don't need to say this out loud, but I just want you to think, where in the Bible do you read about suffering? I just want you to think about that for a moment. What verses in the Bible kind of pop to your mind? What passages, what sections kind of spark some thought in you? And while you're thinking about that, I want to give you uh, something that I found online from, uh, this comes from Josh McDowell's website, uh, but it is his son, Sean, that's a very hard sentence to say. Uh, who wrote this, and it's 10 reasons why we suffer. And so I'm going to just list them one at a time with some corresponding scripture uh, afterwards. It really, this is really going to be brief, and then I'm going to focus in on a couple of them a little bit more clearly. But he says this. This is Sean's writing. He says, number one, suffering is the result of mankind's sin and rebellion against God. We read about that in Genesis 3. Number two, God's people, specifically the Hebrews, suffered when they disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Number three, people sometimes suffer from the wrong choices of other human beings, even though God uses the resulting suffering for good. That's Genesis 50 to 20, sorry, 50 20. That's actually the thesis verse for my seminary paper that I'm writing right now. Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Right? So even though others might cause significant suffering to us, God is still at work in that. Number four, suffering brings faithful believers into deeper understanding and relationship with him. That's basically the whole book of Job. 
Number five, believers suffer because of the jealousy and the hatred of certain people who reject the Christian faith in Acts 7, 54 to 60. Right, so we read about persecution several times in the New Testament. Again, in our part of the world, that's something that we probably have not dealt with in any kind of severity like what we read in the New Testament. Number six, believers suffer as a testament of faith to others. That's Hebrews 11. Number seven, God allows people to suffer so that they will turn to him in repentance and not perish for eternity. That's Luke 13, 1, and 4, 1 to 4. Number eight, Christians suffer so that they can be conformed more closely to the character of Christ, Romans 8, 28, and James 1, 2 to 4. Number nine, believers suffer so that they can know Christ more fully, Philippians 3, verse 10. And number 10, to prepare followers of Christ for the glory of heaven, that's 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Now, I don't know that this is an exhaustive list necessarily, but I think it's a good one. The challenge, of course, is sometimes we want to know why we're suffering, and we look at those 10, and, and it's not real obvious or real clear. Sometimes we suffer because of the decisions that we make, and it's that simple. Sometimes we suffer not because of the decisions we make, but because of the decisions that other people make towards us. And then it says sometimes God brings that suffering into your life because that's the way in which he's going to use you to bring you closer to him. Is not the most encouraging thing that we've ever heard or read. As I was considering the various passages, the two that stuck out to me were Romans 8.28 and James 1.2-4. Both of these you hear me mention a lot. Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now again, I clarify this all the time. All things work together for our good, but what is our good? often our good is not necessarily what we think it is, right? And, and this is one of those advantages of age and experience where you can start looking back on your life and go, thank the Lord that I did not get that or go there or end up in this situation or marry this person or whatever it might be, right? We look back and we can see somewhat with some clarity. But when he says that all things work together for the good of those who love him, what are all things? I think he's being literal. All things. Does our is our suffering included in that? Yes, absolutely. James 1, 2 to 4. James, this is more a perspective on suffering. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, you're suffering, well, he says specifically trials of all kinds. Again, I think he's being literal. Is the suffering that comes into your life has purpose and meaning and can cause us to become more like Christ so that we become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect, the Greek word for, I think, mature, I think that's probably a better way to understand that because that word perfect sometimes gets a little bit confusing for us. What brings us maturity? Well, let's say it this way. When we come to faith in Christ, we acknowledge intellectually, yeah, I think Jesus is who he claimed he was. So I, I want to follow him. I, I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender that because I, I want to be with God for eternity. And so we make that commitment. But then life gets messy and painful and filled with hurt 
And we go, God, why would you? How could you? What are you doing? I don't understand. And we go through some of these things, and that, that intellectual decision that we made gets really tested, and really that's what the book of Hebrews is about. This group of people who understood Jesus is superior to the old covenant. And they said, yes, he is. But then it says they started to go through some persecution, some difficulties. And they started to fall back to their kind of old ways. And the rest of the letter written there is just about, don't, don't go back to what couldn't find any lasting forgiveness. Move towards Christ. Uh, I heard one preacher say it this way once, is, is uh, Jesus is like your parachute. And when you're on the plane, things are no problem and you're good. And then you get thrown out the plane and you have a choice to make. Are you going to cling tightly to that parachute knowing it's the only thing that can save you? Or are you going to be angry at God for throwing you out of the plane? That's a hard question to answer. God, maybe we want to ask, why did you throw me out of the plane? Uh, well, maybe you can see where we're going with this. The book of Job exists, I think, primarily to give us what is a biblical definition of suffering. How we can learn to suffer well. Job suffers extreme loss, probably more so than most anyone that, that we know. And again, I don't want to be definitive, I don't know your suffering, but what I read in Job is pretty extreme. What we see is that uh, Job has a, a pretty good life. It's got lots of family, lots of possessions, lots of wealth, lots of respect, pretty much you know, everything that the world would say, this is good. And through a series of events, uh, everything gets taken away from him. He loses everything materially. So his finances, all of his possessions, all of that's gone. He loses everything relationally. All his children die, and, and in a twist of irony, who's the only one left? His wife who says, why don't you just curse God and die? Thanks, honey. Right? That's not the most comforting word, right? Like this is, this is and, and I don't mean to be cavalier towards her. She is suffering as well. Right? But her response is, I'm done. Like I would rather die. Job's response, should we just accept good from God and not trouble? Then his friends come to comfort him, except if you read through Job, not very well. They start real good by doing what? Sitting with him and saying nothing. I think there's some wisdom there, isn't there? When we go and when we sit with people who are hurting to try and not just give them answers, because we don't really have very many, to just hurt with them, to just pray with them, not to try and give them a why. And of course, that's what happens is Job's friends go, okay, hang on, God is just. We know that to be certain. And so, so in their view, and again, I think this is the secondary reason for Job is it's showing us what justice actually is. They're going, the only reason that bad things would happen to you is if you did something stupid. That's the only reason. And so you obviously, Job, you have obviously sinned, and in your own arrogance, this is why God is punishing you. Except the beautiful part of Job is the narrator who writes the story to us, fills us in on a little detail. In all of this, Job did not sin. So that we, the reader, know that the reason that this is happening, well, we don't know the reason, but we know it's not because of Job's sin. So we read this, and, and you start seeing this back and forth, and his friends go, Job, you got to stop. It's your fault. And Job kind of digs his heels in, and he goes, no. Like, I didn't bring this upon myself. I haven't done this. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and Job cries out and says, if, if, only, if only I could 
summon an audience with God and I could plead my case, I know I would be found innocent. Well, be careful what you wish for, right? We read in Job that God grants him this. And Job shows up and he's kind of ready about to do his lawyer defense thing. What does God say? Job, where were you? Where were you when I created the world? Right? And he asks him some questions with all the sarcasm of, surely you know the answer to this, don't you? Oh, no, you don't. And, and it sounds harsh, but what God's doing is he's not giving an answer because if we get an answer for our suffering, then it's no longer anything to do with faith. But it becomes this only cause and effect thing. When this happens, I know it's because of this, so I deal with that and everything moves forward. And, and, and God says to Job, you don't even know or understand what justice truly is. Because you come at it with your agenda. Right? And I've said this lots before, is, is when we wrong somebody else, we want mercy, but when somebody else wrongs us, we want justice. Because it's all subjective. Who gets to determine? What is just? What is right? And we think suffering is unjust, but what the Bible would have us believe is that it teaches it has purpose and meaning, both for the Christian and for those outside of that. Why do we suffer outside of Christ? Well, because Christ wants to draw us to himself and show us that I am speaking, let's say that differently. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who can give you purpose and meaning and hope. Everything else will fail. It'll give you temporary satisfaction until it lets you down, until it's gone, until it's taken away. And again, this is one of those things, I think COVID did a great example of that. Oh, you like your freedom? There it goes. Not really, right? We still have freedom. Different issue. Let's move on. You like your job. Oh. You like going outside. Okay, was that too soon? Sorry, that was maybe too soon. We start dealing, right, where everything was like it's being taken from me and, and I, can't re- I can't reason through it. God, why would you allow? I think we should actually be more worried if we did figure out why God did something. In Isaiah 55, we talked about this in our young adults group this week, Uh, God writes this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God's ways are so beyond us, and we read that in Psalm 139, where David, just such knowledge, it's too wonderful me, it's high, I, I, I I cannot attain it. Can't understand why God does the things that he does. And what's crazy in the book of Job is God says, where were you? And Job responds by saying, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand. Like that rebuke from God is a sufficient answer for him. Because he recognizes, even if you told me, I wouldn't understand it. It's it's like one of those things of like, if you ever thought about like, what's heaven going to be like? Then you sit down and you think about it for five minutes and then all of a sudden you're like, I got to stop thinking about this because I, 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 like your brain just starts to get dizzy and it starts to hurt because you just can't imagine that. And I think in the same context as sometimes when we see somebody suffering that we have not gone through that, it's real easy to go up beside them and give them all the answers. And then when you go through that suffering, you don't want that answer. You just want somebody to come and cry with you. I don't need answers. I just need someone to love me. That's what the church is for, isn't it? That when we see people hurting, that we would come alongside them and that we would hurt with them. 
And yes, sometimes we do need to share truths from Scripture and we need to show them who God is because when I'm in the midst of my hurt and my suffering and my pain, I don't want to hear the truth, but I need to hear the truth. But if it comes from someone who I know loves me and is gracious rather than someone who's condemning me and saying, Greg, it's your own fault. But rather saying, Greg, God loves you desperately and I know it doesn't feel like that right now. But Scripture promises that he's there with us in the midst of it. So even though you don't feel like it now, bank on what is true intellectually that you know and then try and slowly, and I don't know how this works and sometimes it takes forever, just get your emotions to come and connect with what your brain knows. Right? Emotions are a tough thing. At the end of Job, what we find out is that God actually restores everything to him. And we kind of we kind of think, oh, isn't that isn't that then a result of his his righteousness? And again, the narrator helps us with that and goes, oh no, it's because God gets to decide what God wants to do. God's in charge, and if God gives, then that's good, and if God takes, then that's good. Because He has purpose and He has meaning in everything that He does. And so Job, the story of Job ends well. But what about what about for you if it hasn't ended well? What if you're still in the midst of that crisis and pain and turmoil and suffering and hurt? And what if you don't see the end coming? And what if you, like Job, are going, man, I'm I'm doing all the right things, then may you hear this, you doing more right will not make everything better. You resting in Jesus, according to Philippians, will give you peace that passes all understanding. What does that mean? That means that your situation doesn't make any sense, and yet you can rest in God. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's fun. That doesn't mean you're good. That doesn't mean it's, it's like, oh, yeah, this is no problem. Suffering is brutal. And it takes the best, um, I shouldn't even use that word, it takes the most mature Christian and it can reduce them to nothing because of how painful it is. And I don't want to pretend that somehow when we read some of these verses that we look at it and we go, oh, that's just the response that I should make, no problem. Nobody makes that response fast in Scripture, right? Job is the only one who at the beginning responds well, but then he goes through a lot of difficulty, and a lengthy process. You think of situations that didn't end well. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this. He says that he was given a thorn in the flesh. We're not really sure what that means, but he does expand and he says this. It was given to him as a messenger of Satan to harass him. That's the purpose of it. Right? And you're like, really? How, does, how is this just? How is this right? How is this okay? And so Paul pleads with God. He says, three times I pleaded that God would take it away. Verse 9, God responds this way. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God says, no, I'm not taking it away. You're going to endure this. And and a few verses later, we read that Paul understands and he says it was given to him so that he would not become conceited because pride is that it ruins everything. You look through scripture and you start with Adam and Eve. Pride ruins that relationship. You go through the Old Testament, you go into the New Testament and you find out that anytime we think we're more than we are and we don't rest in who God has created us to be, it always ends badly. So Paul then says this. 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He literally says, when, when, God, when Jesus says to him, I'm not going to heal you of that. He says, I'm going to boast in this more because I will have to rest in the power of Christ that will be upon me through the rest of my life so that I can endure this suffering. That sounds like somebody who suffered a lot to get to that point, doesn't it? I mean, if you read through Paul's uh, life, right, shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and abused and tortured and thrown in prison and denied his rights and over and over and over and over it goes, and yet he's the one who says, I'm going to boast in this so that Christ would receive glory. Like I said, suffering is brutal and it beats us up. But God has purpose in it. We were, a few of us were talking the other day, and this is where the emotions get involved. And, and I don't share this story to be cavalier about it at all, but to actually try and help us to see a point. Is there was someone who was suffering so terribly, and they were just begging to be released from death, and, and, and fi- or released in death, and finally they figured out a way to make this work through, through MAID. And the relief that that person saw on their face, the person that was telling the story, they said they were just, they felt like they had hope. But what do we know as a Christian? We know is that if our life ends and we don't know Jesus, that not only is there no hope, but there's eternal consequences of that. The most loving thing that we as a Christian can do for anyone is not fight for them to die, but fight for them to know Jesus. Now again, I don't pretend to understand how painful or, or overwhelming your suffering is. But what I do know is this, if, if you know Christ, then one day that suffering will end and you'll be with him for eternity. Scripture says that we won't even compare our suffering to what comes next. That's God's desire. Scripture says that it's God's desire that all would come to faith. He's trying to woo us to him. He's trying to bring us to himself saying, look, nothing in this world will give you any satisfaction. And you can try this and you can try this and all of these things, but you will not end up satisfied, but come to me. And We read this last week. Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. It's only in Christ that we find it. Now, again, that doesn't mean that, that we don't hurt for people who hurt. And, and maybe you have had a loved one um, all of a sudden in a horrific accident that is in horrific pain. And it might feel like the only merciful thing to do would be to rid them of that pain. I don't have answers for that. But I know that if they love Jesus, that they will be rid of that pain one day. The physical is important, don't get me wrong. But the spiritual has to be precedent has to be more important because it lasts forever. Jesus warns us this way in Matthew 10, 28. He says, not to worry about the one who can kill the body, but rather worry about Satan who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The good news of Scripture, right, is that that does not have to be the answer. Or the end, I should say. Hell does not have to be the end. God wants you to be in relationship with him. And so it may seem, God, why would you allow this suffering into my life? And again, I don't have an answer for this specific situation other than to say this, is that God is trying to 
bring you into a more Christ-like appearance that you become more like his son. And so if you don't know Christ and you're like, why am I suffering and why is this hurt here and this pain and, and I can't make any sense of it, is if you come to faith in Jesus, it won't all make sense to you. But hopefully it will give you a perspective that at least I know this suffering will end. And then I'll be with him for forever. Again, when somebody is given a diagnosis where they say, you have six months to live. If that person knows Jesus, is, is it okay to enter into a program where they end their life faster? I, I don't know. I don't have answers for that. But what I do know is that God, and I say this all the time, as long as you have breath, God has purpose for your life. And if in my suffering, I can bring somebody to faith in Jesus or, or be part of that journey, if in my suffering they can see somebody who they're hurt and they're broken and they're confused and yet they won't let go of God even though maybe the world is telling them not to. If I can do that, then I think it would all be worth it. Now again, that is a very hypothetical sentence to say, right? Because it's easy for me to say that here and now. But I think it's true. When do, you, when do you pull the plug? When do you allow these things? I don't know. I simply want to say this, is God has meaning and purpose in your pain. A great resource for you is a book called Where is God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. And I think if, if you're going through some of these difficulties, again, the book's not going to give you all these answers, but I think it will help you find a companion to journey it through. And so we as the church, when you see someone suffering, care for them, love them, show them Christ. Don't try and give them answers. Don't try and tell them why they're suffering. Just be there for them and with them, all the while pointing them to Jesus. And when moments come where we can remind them of the truth of Scripture, even if they're not feeling that, you better have built up enough relationship that they're willing to hear you. We just show up in the darkest hour and we say, if you do this, you'll be better, and we walk away. That's not going to do anything. But if we suffer with them and we hurt with them and we journey that life with them, then we will be able to point them to the truth of what Scripture teaches us. Not because, you know, I've walked it and so it's true, but because Jesus did and he promised us. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are and your love for us. And thank you that what Scripture says is that your desire is that every one of us would come to faith because you love us so desperately. You have created us and you know us so intimately and we have value and purpose because of that. And so God, instead of trying to figure out the whys and trying to get answers for questions that we probably can't even understand, would you remind us of what is true in the scriptures? Would you remind us of how to suffer biblically? And God, for those this morning here who are suffering, who are in pain, who are hurting, God, would you provide brothers and sisters in Christ for them that will journey that with them, that will love them unconditionally, that will care for them,
God, I acknowledge there's no easy answers to some of these questions. But I also see in the book of Job that Job doesn't get an answer and yet chooses to respond in humility. So God, would you soften our hearts and show us that a life with you is worth living, even when it feels like it's not. God, we love you. We thank you. Be at work in our hearts this week. Thank you that your presence is with us always. Amen. Thank you for joining us again. As Ernie said, there are 46 Timbits now maybe uh, left for you, but please stay and, and fellowship and just enjoy uh, meeting a few people, and, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.